So, after the death of Ducat, as well as the severely dark and rather depressing stories we've just had, it makes sense that they would have what is effectively a comedy episode. I, I say, that's the wrong term. It's not a comedy episode. Not like Magnificent Ferengi will be. No, this is more of a light-hearted bit. It's like, okay, let, let's, let's bring the tone up a little bit. Now, I, I've actually found a decent amount of behind-the-scenes information for this one. Uh, first of all, as I've said many times, Ronald D. Moore was the one who basically designed Klingon culture and has helped flesh it out over the years. He also has lamented that he, according to him unintentionally, made it a very male-dominated society, and he's been trying to fix that. Now, I've actually commented on the female role in Klingon politics and culture several times, but most of that's with the advantage of hindsight from stuff that's being developed here in DS9, to wit, the idea of the women controlling the house, which is something that was also mentioned with, I can't remember her name, the one who got together with Quark. We also see <laughs> Alexander, who this is the last time he physically shows up in the show, or ever, by the way, but Alexander has uh, his own presence, and, you know, they're tying together to that. In fact, they really wanted the Enterprise to be here, too. You know, the Enterprise... The, 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 the Enterprise crew, the TNG crew. Now, what's interesting is, I figured they just didn't have them because, I mean, screw it, right? But funnily enough, actually it was every intention to go ahead and bother with the time, effort, makeup, and, and money in order to get them on, even for non-speaking roles, just to have them there and present at the wedding. Turns out, however, they just couldn't get it to work with scheduling. The only people they could get were the people who were already on site. The directors, Jonathan Frakes and LeVar Burton, who work regularly on the studio, so they were physically there and easy to get a hold of. Everyone else? No. And I only want to bring that up because this is a perfect example. This I might start using this as my er example for the advantage of animation when it comes to doing television. Because if this was an animated show, whether it be CGI or traditional drawn, they could have had them there. That would have been possible. In fact, they could have even had them have speaking lines because it's not that hard, and in fact, this is actually a regular thing, for people to do their lines in a different studio and then have those shipped or mailed or emailed or sent over whatever in order to get to the destination or to dump it in. So, just pointing that out. Anyways, another thing I want to mention is that they mention a Captain Shelby of the Sutherland. Now, this is interesting because it is worth noting that this was deliberate. That is supposed to be the Captain Shelby, as in the Shelby from Best of Both Worlds. However, uh, there's a series of books, uh, what is it, uh, Ordover's books, that kind of covered the Shelby stuff as well, which they kind of forgot about, so they didn't really mean to step on the toes of that. But I just wanted to mention that because it's interesting that the original intent was, yes, that's her. They also, <laughs> while we're here... They also had a completely different plan for Odo. Now, this is interesting to me. Because the original plan for Odo was... He was going to be like, look... I'm, I'm going to keep doing my job, but I'm no one's friend anymore. I, I can't. I cannot be anyone's friend anymore. For him to truly distance himself from the crew. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, not only did he do some legitimately terrible things, but he's kind of had a massive culture and system shock that he has no capacity to, to cope with, to deal with. So, okay, that makes sense, that he would distance himself. The problem was, by several accounts, including Moore's own admission, they didn't have any plans to do anything after that. It was like, all right, he distanced himself, then what? 
uh, and they had nothing. There was no plan to bring him back into the fold, and they weren't sure where they were going to go with the character, and ultimately they just finally decided to torpedo it. But by the time they came to that decision, this episode was already well into production, so they had to make what is effectively a last-minute change to the script, so the whole thing with Odo was effectively resolved off-camera. That didn't sit well with a lot of audience members, but as weird as this is going to sound, I think this actually worked out pretty well. Hear me out for a second. So what happens is there are several scenes where Kira, we, we were with Kira, and we see Odo coming, and Odo goes way out of his way to avoid her. And then finally it gets to the party, that is to say, uh, Jadzia's party. And Odo shows up, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to address the complaints. Oh, it looks like this is a thing. Okay, well, I'll just leave. And Kira's like, we need to talk. Odo's like, what? And Kira's like, come on. Now? Yes, we've put it off long enough. Okay. Yeah, no, we, we should talk about this. And what I love about it is there is an honest sincerity in both of their performances. As usual, both actors are phenomenal, so both Rene Bergenois and Nana Visitor do a good job of showing how much this, this has just been bothering the hell out of both of them and they need to address this. The next we see, it is hours upon hours later. Like, possibly eight, nine, or even twelve hours later. And they're still just sitting in the closet, talking. Now... This is going to sound weird, but that actually works for me really well. I've had those kind of talks in real life with friends, with family, with you know, romantic interests. Um, and it's, it's hard to explain because you just kind of... You let go of all the pretenses and all the bullcrap and you just lay it all out there. And there's something wonderfully connecting and open and honest about that kind of sincere communication. It's very... Uh, I don't want to say stress-relieving, that's the wrong word, but I mean, it's, it's like you unclench, right? And you work through it, because that's the whole point of that kind of discussion. You just, you work through whatever the issue is. In some cases, it's something that one of them is going through, or maybe they're just, they have an issue together, or maybe you just want to be with them and be there for them, and you just talk and talk, and, so, and it drifts, and then you drift topics, and you just start talking about other things, and then you look up, and, it, and the sun's coming up, and it's like, oh my god, I work today. That's happened to me more than once. More than a lot of times, actually. And it's just, there's something I completely connect with on that level. Now, maybe that's just me and because of my personal experience, and I'll admit that. But I do think that was probably as good of a thing as they could have done with it, unless they decided to go with the alternate idea I mentioned of Odo becoming one of the bad guys and becoming the new face of the Dominion. And that would have pissed off the... You think this pissed off the fans? I would have pissed off the fans so hard. I still would have done it. But, you know... <clears throat> Anyways, as always, curious of your thoughts. So let's get to the episode proper. It looks like Deep Space Nine finally has an actual fleet attached to it for the first time in the entire show. This is, what, what is this? This is, uh, I, don't, I don't have my notes on me. Uh, this is season six, episode seven, I want to say? Yes, that sounds right. This is season six, episode seven, and for the first time they finally have an honest-to-God fleet attached to this place. I have been complaining about that since season one. You know, what's doubly funny is they have this fleet attached here, and the implication that they say in the episode is that it's to defend the wormhole. And yet, as we've discussed, and as will be proven true in the future, the Dominion's going to leave the wormhole alone because the prophets are the new barrier. So... <laughs> Why are they even here? Now, in fairness, there is actually a good reason. Remember, Bejor is basically 
interstellarly next door to Cardassia, which is Dominion territory. This is a front base, and that's a very advantageous thing to have. So in that sense, it makes perfect sense. It's just weird they don't acknowledge that in the episode. So, they mention that the war is continuing. I just want you to remember that in the back of your mind. I have memories of it bothering me, how many normal... Normal Star Trek-y episodes happen between now and the end while the war is going on. I don't know if I'll actually still feel that going back through it, but I remember that bothering me back in the day, last time I rewatched this, which uh, would have been about 2006 or 2007, somewhere around there at this point. So it's been a little while, obviously. What kind of leader is Martok? I've mentioned before that Sisko is the person who's in the trenches with his troops. Martok, who has been made the supreme commander, the, the, the operational leader of an entire navigational force, and the, the entire Ninth Fleet operates directly under his command, and he's going to carry his flag on a bird. Yeah, I know, it's probably a cavort. I could look it up, but I'm, I don't care. It's a retard. It's a bird of prey. He's going to carry his flag on a bird of prey. That's the kind of leader that he is. <laughs> What's funny is, as I've mentioned before, he does have a very serious knack for the strategic thinking. And we're going to start seeing that going forward. But I'm talking about war and stats, and uh, let's talk about the love, the, the romance. Because you guys know how much I love romance and Star Trek, right? Actually, I've noticed there's a bit of a misconception that uh, some people seem to think that I still still think this, even though I feel like I've expressed, expressed this multiple times, think that I'm just anti-romance in fiction, which is actually not true. Granted, I do not seek out romance in fiction. But my problem is usually how the romance itself is written. To wit, it is usually written as either a fling of the week, which I shouldn't even have to explain why that irritates me. It's the same exact reason why the threat of the week irritates me. Or it's the kind of thing where that's not a relationship. Like, that's not how a relationship works. There's nothing real there. There's nothing substantial there. And that tends to irritate me. And if I could be perfectly blunt, I think they have done a huge misservice to Nana Visitor by constantly trying to hook Kira up with random guys and then tossing them out the window. Which they've done more than once. More than twice, actually, if you're paying attention. So... That being said, I have gone on record multiple times as saying that the Worf Judzia romance never really worked for me. And I stand by that, but I think I'd like to ad adjust that a little bit. Not only because of this episode, which actually does a good job of developing the relationship between the two, but because, this is going to sound weird, but both of them have better chemistry with the other when the other isn't present, in my opinion. In other words, the scenes with Worf and Martok and the scenes with Judzia and Sisko help sell the relationship between Judzia and Worf. That's what I mean by that. They actually manage to get across their, their, their caring, their love, their commitment, whatever you want to call it, rather well when the other person isn't actually present. I don't mean that as an insult to either actor, by the way. It's just an observation. After all, it's not always going to work, and I mean, they just kind of shove the two together, right? I've noticed they do a lot of romance on DS9. It's actually kind of weird when you think about it, because none of the rest of Star Trek hits the romance angle as hard as DS9 does. You ever notice that? Just food for thought. That's going to continue going forward, too. Anyways, <clears throat> moving on. So they bring on Shannon Cochran as Sorella. Now, she used to play Kalita over in the Maquis, 
And she was actually a pretty decent guest star over there, and she does a pretty good guest star here. I kind of wish we'd seen more of the actress, because this is one of those guest stars they, they could have brought back multiple times, and it could have been a good good thing. I don't mean as Sorella, I mean just the actress herself. She had good talent, and you know, they tapped her, and it worked well, and they should have tapped her more, is what I'm trying to say. We need that red mana, damn it! Now, <clears throat> there's this interesting bit where... Uh, Martok mentions that the Klingons don't embrace other cultures, they conquer them. I want to talk about that for a bit, because that actually comes up later, too. Worf, uh, multiple times, and Sorella, multiple times, basically say, in order to be part of the Klingons, you have to bow and scrape and do exactly what the Klingons say. It has to be the Klingon way, period, the end. No ifs, ands, or buts, right? Why is that? Now, I know, I know, I'm a pathetic little human, a weak little worm who insists on embracing and acceptance and tolerance and all those other horribly non-Klingon things, but here's the problem. Uh, ignoring the obvious reason why I find that to be derogatory, I don't actually think that's the Klingon way. Hear me out. The Klingons, as a culture, if I was to describe them in one sentence, it would be reaction. Which I guess is actually one word. It's all about how you do what you do. I've talked about this so many times. In fact, I have a feeling that part of the reason Sorella was okay with this in the end was specifically because of the fact that Jadzia was unafraid to challenge her even when she had a knife on her. Because that's Klingon. That's how Klingons operate. We've seen this gajillions of times. The idea of the Klingons being... I don't want to say culturally supremacist, but I don't know what else to call it. I don't think that's a cultural thing. I think there are individuals within the Klingon culture who do believe our way of the highway or else. But I don't think that is a Klingon thing in general. That's just people being people. There are plenty of humans who think our way of the highway or nothing else as well. Now, that is just my opinion, and I don't know how much that conflicts with the overall ideas of Ronald D. Moore, who is, of course, the Klingon writer, but I just wanted to toss that idea out there, because it didn't gel with me. Even Cisco goes and says, no, you've got to go and do everything they say in every way they say it, because you chose this. I don't agree. Like I said, I don't agree with the Klingons being that way. Now, I can see Worf being that way. You know, there's a reason I call that concept the Worf thing, right? Um, the Son of Moog effect, as I like to call it. But, moving on. So, the Klingons have a trial. Four days of fasting. They, and they have to sit, stand around this thing, and they have to be cut, and they have to hang from the bar over hot coals, and it looks like it really, really sucks. They're apparently given breaks to go home and sleep and then come back, but that's it. You know, I know three people in real life I would go through that with, or through that for, excuse me. Like, if one of those three people came to me and said, please do this thing for me, it means a lot to me, and I'd be like, you're freaking kidding, right? And they're like, no, I really mean it. I'm like, okay. Because that sounds like some kind of hell to me. <laughs> I am actually impressed at how far O'Brien, Bashir, and Sisko are willing to go here. Now, granted, this is played for comedy, and it leads to the funniest moment of the entire show. That is to say, the entire episode. But... <laughs> We'll come back to that. Or I guess we can talk about it now, because it really is the... F There's actually two moments. One is, it's working. Seeing a vision. I'm going to kill Worf. Yes. Kill Worf. Kill Worf. Yeah, kill Worf. Kill Worf. 
The other one is the final shot of the episode where they just charge. They're like, can we can we beat him up now? Can we attack him yet, please? Can we get him now? Okay, okay, now, yes! And they just go to charge him. That's a great moment. Uh, I'm looking at my notes here. I actually don't have much else to share, it looks like. There was a nice scene where Nog and Dax just start dancing really random, goofy stuff. That was apparently fully improv. Uh, Livingston just told them, eh, go do whatever. <laughs> and they did. Um, oh, yes, I do have actually two more things to talk about. So the first thing is both Martok and Jadzia say basically the same thing. We do not choose who we fall in love with. Now, that's a common concept. I don't want to say whether I agree or disagree with it, but what I want to say is that it's an intangible concept. Hey, that sounds familiar. I told you this is going to be a recurring trend. The tangible and the intangible, in my opinion, have to both be considered. Now, what I mean by that is if you fall in love with someone, okay, but there needs to be something tangible to support that, too. This is, in a way, part of my problem with the Worf Jadzia dynamic. Uh, they seem... The way I've often seen romances, this is in real life experience at this point, not fiction, but the way I often see romances that actually work are the ones that match each other. Now, when I say that, I mean that they fit with each other. Like, if you were to envision a block, and that's one of them, and then there's another block, and that's the other one, and you mash them together, the pattern of that edge that connects has to, at least in part, match the pattern of the other. So, you know, if they're like this, then they have to be like this, right? This is a crude representation, but you get the idea. Um, and, of course, because we're human beings, there's hundreds upon hundreds of little patterns along the edge, and so, obviously, all of them are not going to match. But as long as enough of them match, there you go. They're together. That's the tangible side of things. That's taking care of making sure you have enough money to pay the bills or can ensure that you're still pursuing your hobbies or your career or maybe you have health concerns or maybe there's something else. There's all kinds of trillions, if I'm being blunt, of different variables that could exist there. And this is the thing that the episode doesn't bring up, which I feel is a bit lamentable, if I'm being blunt, because all they bring up is the intangible. You love her and he loves, he loves her, she loves him. That's all the episode brings up. As if that is all that's required. In my blunt opinion, that is not all that's required. You need to have the foundation in addition to the love. With both, well, then you got something real. We'll see how the relationship continues throughout the rest of this season. The last thing I want to mention is I actually kind of like the Klingon wedding. It's a big story about the mythos of Klingons, how they made the Klingon heart. But then the, the Klingon heart was alone, so they made another heart. And this heart was even stronger, so the first heart was threatened. And the first heart went to destroy the second heart, but the second heart fought back and said, No, let us not kill each other, because together there is nothing we can't deal with. And there's just something wonderfully romantic about that that I love. So, final thought here. To my knowledge, Worf is never with anyone else after Jadzia. That is to say, Jadzia is the last person he's ever with. Let me phrase that more clearly. Just interesting to think about, in hindsight. Hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this somewhat silly episode. I'll see you next time.